Welcome back to Pandemic Pass. If you missed parts one and two of this episode, be sure to download my conversations with Congressperson Bobby Scott in part one and Delegate Janelle Wilkins in part two. Uh, You don't want to miss those conversations. They really were awesome. Uh, My name is Casey Siddons, and you are listening to Pandemic Pass. And uh, in the last part of of these of this fourth episode of Pandemic Pass, uh, which is titled "The Way Out," you know our our public school system is is hurting, and I don't think we we have really taken the time to take stock as to how much uh, hurt there is on our institution of, of public education. And while Ed is certainly not dead, uh, it's going to need need many fixes and repairs throughout the coming years to really adequately cover recover from this crisis. Um, for, for part three, I bring in Dr. Josh Starr, and, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with Dr. Starr is because I believe, in, and I think you'll agree, I believe his clarity and empathy as a leader lends itself quite well to this, this particular crisis that we currently find ourselves in. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Starr's background in just a minute. Um, he's currently the chief executive officer of PDK International. Um, with, with Dr. Starr, his experience as a, a school superintendent and, and now as head of a national organization whose aim is, is really to elevate the teaching profession and expand and diversify the teaching force, he, they're at the vanguard of helping repair the image of public schools, in my opinion. Um, in terms of bringing in a, a wider array of teachers and bringing in new perspectives, I, I think even though that's maybe not their their number one cause, I, I think that's what they're doing. Uh, and really, they're trying to build back the teaching force from the attrition that has occurred over the past year. I think they're, the, Dr. Starr will talk about the long game, as you'll hear in our conversation. Um, but really, they're going to have they've, they've been working at this for quite a while. And, and there's, there's been some hurt in this, this area uh, on public schools for quite a while. And I think this, this particular pandemic is showing the wounds uh, that have been around for quite some time. So uh, about our guest, my guest today, Dr. Starr, uh, as I said, he's the chief, the CEO of PDK International. Uh, he's been there since 2015. Um, and under his leadership, PDK has really expanded the Educators Rising program. If you haven't heard a bit about it, go ahead and Google it. I'll put it in the, the show notes as well um, across the nation, which seeks to build up our teaching force and increase teacher retention. Uh, he's the author of a number of, of essays and op-eds, and he writes a monthly column that I highly recommend. It's called On Leadership for Capen. And um, again, I highly recommend you check it out. Prior to joining PDK, Dr. Starr was superintendent of schools in Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland, which is the 14th largest school district in the United States. And he was also superintendent of schools for Stamford in Connecticut. Uh, this episode, this part of episode four, uh, really is the on-the-ground view of, as I was saying, the title of this this episode is The Way Out. Uh, and the the entire premise of this particular three-part episode is is getting to this point. So thanks for sticking with me on this, and, and I hope you enjoy it. It's a really great interview, great discussion. It was great reconnecting with Dr. Starr. And uh, enjoy, and we'll see you on the flip side.
Dr. Joshua Starr, thank you so much for joining us on the Pandemic Pass. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad to have you on our show and, and to have this discussion with you today. Um, what, do you, what do you see as our, our state of public education right now? Well, first, Casey, thanks for having me um, on. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure. Um, and I'm happy to support the, the work you're doing, leadership that you've always, always shown. So I think we are at a place right now where there are some really fundamental questions facing public education that the pandemic has forced us to, to reckon with, with the number one issue being the inequities. People now see them in ways that those of us who've been in the business have always known and always seen, but when we now see that there isn't broadband access for some mm -hmm. kids, that other kids, you know, that um, this tension around, do you have to have the camera on if someone doesn't want to show their background, like the, the food issues, the hunger issues. So, so I think that the inequities are slapping us in the face in ways or America in the face in ways that hopefully yeah. will continue to be part of the dialogue when we do come back in and recover and say, wait a second. And we know we're going to have to catch kids up. And then the, um, you know, the flip side of that is we're seeing the um, hyper entitlement of privileged parents um, on steroids now and yeah. with, with learning pods, with, you know, some of the alignment, you know, and the, the difference between who wants to keep schools open, who wants to keep them closed. So we're seeing like all that is is coming out more and more, I think. The other inter really interesting conversation I think is happening, and John Meta from Harvard wrote a fabulous piece in the New York Times the other day about making schools more human. I think we're taking this opportunity to say, you know, wh what's the real purpose of school and, and how does it serve society and what should we be doing going forward? I, I wrote about this, you know, at EdNext the other day around standardized testing. Like this is an opportunity to think about what aspects of pre-COVID weren't working and should frankly be done away with. And what have we learned during the COVID environment um, that can be kept? What's the role of technology? Even just some of the communications and efficiencies. Um, I have one friend who jokingly said after the um, parent-teacher conferences on Zoom back in the fall, she's like, I never want to go to a parent-teacher conference in person again. <laughs> Zoom was the best thing ever because I didn't, you know, and I don't know what it's like as a I teacher. Agree. Well, yeah, and you know, you're right. And part of it is you don't have to sit there and listen to that one parent who says, my kid, Casey, kind of struggled. Or you know that story, right? Yes. So I think there's some, so how do we, you know, that's a small little issue, but I think there are these questions like, wait a second, uh, you know, it, teachers now you have to use technologies in ways that they didn't have to before. How can they incorporate? So I think I would hope that we would have a real conversation about not only the gross inequities that must be addressed in our funding systems, in our resource allocation systems. Sure. Um, and all that, but also like what's possible, what have we learned? Um, and, and I think that, that hopefully, you know, there's going to be an opportunity to do so. We don't know what the new administration will bring to it, frankly. Right. Um, but at the local levels where all the action happens, I, I hope that the good leaders can, can organize their teachers and their families uh, to really think about what, what, what have we learned and what should we do going forward? And, and I'll just end on this. And I've written about this as well. Um, I do think that this is the opportunity for teacher leadership to be at the forefront of what's next. And if there were ever a time to let those who are closest to the problem solve the problem, this is it.
And I, and I think we see more of that. Yeah. That's really well said. I, I think, you know, as much as it seems like Zoom teaching and, and learning have gotten busier than when we were in person, I think we have really a, an opportunity and time and, and, and space to think about how we as uh, our school systems move forward. And, and on that note, like in your former role as superintendent of one of the largest school districts in the country, what, what are your takes and opinions on how systems can most effectively emerge from this pandemic? And, and what, what kind of things would you prioritize in terms of coming budget constraints, staffing issues, mental well-being of, of staff and students, uh, et cetera? So I think that there's two ways of looking at that question. One is the what, and the second is the how. The what is addressing the needs of the most vulnerable kids and families first. There's no excuse to not know where every single child is and what their family condition is. There's enough resources in Montgomery County and every other school district in America to say we must account for every single child and every single family and have a plan to support them, whether that's food insecurity, whether it's housing insecurity, whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health. There's just no excuse for that. I think this is going to be the time also then to create individual plans for every child. Um, You know, we've talked about that before, but really like there should be, you should account for every single kid and say, what are they going to need? Is it going to be reading? Is it going to be mental health? Is it going to be mathematics? Whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So that's one. And then that's the what. And then the how is going to be who gets to make the decisions. And, you know, places like Montgomery County, and this is part of what I was trying to bust up a little bit, have been very centralized and very command and control. And there's a consistent way of doing business, which does create efficiencies and does create accountability. And there's there's some there's some um, elegance to that model. But sure. those who are closest to the kids and the families need to be making decisions about what kids need and how it should and how those services should be delivered. We right. don't rely on our teachers enough to make decisions. We don't rely on our support professionals enough. Um, we rely way too much on standardized assessments rather than the authentic information that teachers have about kids. Um, so that's a process question yeah. that leaders have to learn how to organize that way. Um, but I think that going back in and thinking about what the summer is going to look like, organizing around the non-negotiable question of what are we doing to ensure that our most vulnerable kids have everything they need first and, and making that a political issue, right? I mean, you know, there's a, there's a politics to that. Um, and yeah. then helping leaders at the school level work with their communities in authentic ways to bring their intelligence and thought and, and creativity to bear on that, I think is going to be um, what we need to do going forward. Yeah, and I think um, in terms of, you know, bringing in the teachers, who, the, the folks who are face-to-face with kids every day, seeing what works and doesn't work. I mean, starting at the ground level of saying, you know, what's what can we do that is working for kids? What should we stop? What should we continue? I think is, is super important. Um, so, you know, as, as what you're doing now as CEO of PDK International, it's a, an organization that I'm quoting from the website. It supports teachers and school leaders by strengthening their interest in the profession, something that I've had a personal interest in for quite some time. Uh, what role do you see your organization playing in the recovery and, and build back of public schools at large? So I think there, there are two things. Um, one is through the magazine, Cap and Magazine, which you know sits at yep. the intersection of research, policy, and practice. We are trying to get good 
practicable information out into the field so that um, practitioners as well as policymakers can have a set, can know what works. Like what, what do you actually need to do in order to support kids? What do you need to do in order to increase your number of teachers of color? Like whatever it may be, like we want to just put good information out into the field um, sure. so that people have the resource so they can make evidence-based decisions. The other thing, of course, is the work we're doing with Educators Rising, which is seeking to um, both address the teacher shortage that we have looming in the country, uh, but also diversify the profession. Um, and as more and more folks are recognizing how important both of those aspects are, um, yeah. you know, we don't yet know what the numbers are going to be with people taking early retirement or, you know, the, the shortage numbers have been seen for years and they've been um, certainly... Yeah evidenced in uh, about a 35% decrease in teacher prep program enrollment. Um, I don't know what it looks like in Maryland, but I'm sure it's about the same. Uh, we have a real problem and we have to diversify. And we, you know, we've got solutions around that that nobody else has. So we, we're continuing to just be um, focused. Uh, we're continuing to be focused on that. And I'm hoping that the new Cardona administration, the Biden-Harris administration are going to be really be embracing that, which we expect they will. Um, and that's that's how we're hoping uh, to help. Yeah, it helps, uh, having VP Harris coming from Howard university, uh, you know, a, one of many HBCUs that provide a lot of teachers and, and folks who are, are working in schools across the country. So that's, that's awesome. Uh, and one of the main programs, as you mentioned of PDK international is the ed rising program whose goal is to foster a pipeline of, of diverse and highly qualified educators into schools. I, I read recently that we're, we're about to face a uh, hundred thousand teacher shortage across the nation. And I imagine we're probably going to be seeing a lot more of uh, teacher attrition this year. To what extent do you see the efforts and guideposts of Ed Rising changing in the coming months, if at all? Yeah. So we are, you know, the, the challenge, frankly, with Ed Rising is we're a long-term play because you take a kid who's a junior in high school. We've actually had some, some chapters around the country that are working at the elementary, at the middle school level. Um, okay. But you take a kid in junior in high school and get them on the path to be a teacher. It's a six-year investment uh, through community, you know, through uh, college and back into the community. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is great interest in using our materials to um, get folks who are paraeducators and substitute teachers into the yeah. teaching profession, which actually Montgomery County has a pretty good track record of um, really with SEIU Local 500 has, uh, I mean, I, I'm really impressed with what they've always done around workforce development. So we're trying to pivot um, or not pivot, but enhance what we're doing by also uh, uh, attending to the needs um, or attending to the, to, to the, the, the market of, paraeducators um that pipeline we're hoping to do that yeah but we're a long-term play we're we're not an immediate solution right we're not an alt cert program um you know we're about a long-term investment that a community needs to make in its education workforce um you know so i'm hoping you know that people will recognize that while we may need some immediate solutions we also need some some you know more fundamental ones through having ed rising academies uh, throughout the country. Yeah. Um, so I, I try to end these, I like to end these, these interviews on a, on a positive note, you know, we can, we can get in the weeds talking about pandemic stuff. Um, so what kind of silver linings have you experienced with teachers and schools since distance learning began? Um, 
It reinforces the love that teachers have for their jobs and their commitment to their kids. So we had an experience and I treated about this with my, with my son's math teacher. Um, and it was really interesting, you know, he needed some extra help and, and she was fabulous with it. And, um, you know, she met with him on a Saturday morning over zoom. Right. And she also was talking about the way she didn't really know him because she doesn't see him in class. And you realize how much, teachers like love that were no, not every teacher. I mean, but so many <laughs> like they just love their work though. And yes. we don't see that enough. And that's why, you know, that's why I went to, I love kids. Right. And there's something about mm-hmm. working with kids and working with adults, who love kids. And this notion of like, there's just something about the public good that's so powerful with education. And I think that I hope that more people are recognizing how, fundamentally important public education is to a democracy. Um, I think that there's been this, um, you know, this counter, um, how do I say this? Given given the political context that exists, we also see what the absence of civics education has done to us and our kids. And you wonder, like, you know, so I I think these questions are out there in, in some ways. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I hope again, if we see a decrease in, in over-reliance on standardized testing, if we see an investment mm-hmm. in teacher leadership, if folks rally around the equity issues, maybe we can come out and say, you know what, you know, this is a horrible, horrible year and we, we can and must be better for it. Uh, I, that's, that's like my glasses half full kind of thinking. No, I love it. I, I, you know, public schools and public school systems can sometimes seem like big cruise ships that are hard to move. And uh, I was just interviewing with, uh, I interviewed Rick Wormley uh, just the other day, and he talked about um, the analogy of obviously fire, uh, a, a, a fire, a, a wildfire is not, you know, always positive. The, the natural way that uh, forest regenerates is through forest fires. And, uh, Maybe maybe this is our proverbial fire to to say that we need to shift our practices and try to do things better in the future. So yeah, but it's going uh, to take enlightened leadership. I mean, and and the challenge yes. is the politics of the way local decisions get made. The um is is going to require leaders at the superintendent level, at the system level, at the school level, who will withstand. The not only the privilege and entitlement that's always exercised, but also know how to organize the people who are closest to yep. the work to do the work, and and that's and they haven't been trained that way. They haven't, you know, that's not been the incentive yeah. structure, and I don't know that they will know how to do it. Um, yeah. And I also think, quite frankly, and I know this is you know, uh, this is public, but I do think that the the role of unions during all of this has been interesting. Um, and yeah. I think we need to take a really hard look at um, how to work effectively and have effective decision-making processes with our unions um, yeah. in order to respond to the needs of kids. Yeah, well said. Well, Dr. Starr, thank you so much for joining us on uh, this episode of Pandemic Pass. Uh, you know, your insight is super valuable, and uh, we look forward to having you on the on the on Ed's Not Dead again, or on Ed's Not Dead for the first time coming up, and I hope you'll join us. So thanks a lot for coming on the show. My pleasure. Uh, Really happy to do it, Casey.
Thank you for joining us on Pandemic Pass. Pandemic Pass is a pulp education production and was written and directed by me, Casey Siddons. Music was written and performed by Peter Crape. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us.